Amen. To love my enemies and care for those in need. I wonder if Ananias ever sang that song or at least prayed that prayer. Because his, in his encounter with God, Jesus was certainly answering that prayer. You'll find his story in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 20. And this morning we're taking a look at an encounter with Jesus, but it's the risen Jesus that's being account, uh, encountered here by Ananias. He has a vision uh, of Jesus. Ananias seems to be a... Uh, secondary player in this drama. He's not famous. He's just a a disciple from Damascus or a disciple in Damascus. Damascus was a, a refugee city of recent in this particular scripture, a refugee city for Christians that were fleeing the violence, the riots in Jerusalem. They went to Damascus 140 miles away to get away from the persecution that had broken out against the church. Thousands had come to Christ at Pentecost in Jerusalem, and those thousands were winning others day by day. The body of Christ was growing in Jerusalem, and those who could not stomp out this message or stomp out this truth by crucifying Christ finally got frustrated and struck out at the church. They arrested Stephen, one of the new deacons in the church, brought him before the Sanhedrin, and he basically told them their whole history. I'm sure he almost had an amen section from those who were interrogating them, and then in the end, he tells the story in such a way that it's obvious that they have become the crucifiers of their own Messiah. They can't bear to hear it. They rush upon Stephen and take him out into the streets. And our next picture here shows Stephen before those uh, Pharisees. He was stoned to death. And if you'll look to the left, there's a man there with, I I guess you'd call it an evil eye. His name is Saul. Saul was a the one who then led the persecution that broke out with the stoning of Stephen. He was determined to rid Jerusalem of this contagion, as he must have saw it, as a radically devoted Jew. In Romans, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, we have that bit of the story told. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose among the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They stayed behind. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. That word ravaging is a graphic word. It's the picture that's used of a a predator devouring its prey. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. But Saul was not content just to rid Jerusalem of the Christians. That was not enough. He wanted expedition papers so he could chase them down wherever they had escaped. 
Ananias in this particular passage uh, is in conversation at least with those fleeing Christians. He's heard what's happened in, Jer- in Jerusalem. And apparently he knows that this Saul, this terror of Jerusalem, is now coming to Damascus where, where he himself is. It's there that he has this encounter. And, and knowing that about Saul, now if you, if you want to get a real picture of Saul in the first century, take the next slide there. Well, he, he, there it is. There it is. When Saul left Jerusalem, I think he had one of those little red dots in his eye, and he turned around to those Christians in Jerusalem and said, I'll be back. He was that kind of ravager. Paul himself says that he persecuted the church beyond measure. So you can hardly find fault in uh, Ananias' hesitation as he has this vision of Jesus and what Jesus says to him. We'll pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 9. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For look, he's praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias coming and laying his hands upon him so that he might regain his sight. (laughs) And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Wow. And thus begins the legacy of Paul. He went to the synagogue in just three days and preached the first of thousands of sermons. He argued that Jesus was the Christ, both in language that Jews and Greeks could understand. He became one of the most empowered and impactful apostles that the church has ever known. But we may not have known Paul if Ananias hadn't gone. Think about that. 
who could uh, fault at him for his reluctance. If he, if he went to Saul, he was risking prison and, and persecution beyond measure, according to Paul, and maybe death and flogging. He had heard the dire warnings of those who were coming out of Jerusalem, and yet he went. We can marvel at his obedience despite all the personal risks that were involved for him. He nevertheless goes. Why? Why? I think it's because Jesus saw something in Saul that Ananias was yet to see. He said, go to the street called Straight. Now, if you're a Christian wanting to hide out in Damascus, not to be noticed, that's the last place you want to go. That's like going to the mall, right? If it, does anybody remember that? Going to the mall? If, if there's a place where you could be seen by others, that would be the place that you would go. To the street called Straight, it was a three-lane street. In the middle lane was where the actual traffic went east to west through Damascus. And on each side of it was a very wide uh, sidewalk, really kind of a plaza, where people had their businesses. So this was the... The heart, the thoroughfare of the city, if there was a place where you could be discovered, uh, that would probably be it. Go to that populated street, the street called Straight, and inquire in Judas's house for one named Saul. Uh, he didn't go home to tell his wife. He, he, he didn't even tell a buddy, if I, if I don't come back, this is where I've been. Scripture just says that he went. And, and when he walks in, his vision of who Saul is has so changed through the lens of how his Lord saw him that he doesn't call him Terminator Saul. He calls him Brother Saul. And with that, something must have broken inside of Saul. As confused as he must have been, as as wrong as he knew he now was, how could he ever stand before anyone again, both those that he had stood for would think he's a traitor, and those he had turned against would think he was their persecutor? Who on earth could Saul count on as a friend? Jesus sent him one. One walked through the door, and the first word out of his mouth was brother. Brother Saul. Jesus had already made him so. God had already been at work. As as Ananias comes in, this dominant, fury-breathing terminator had become a broken man, dependent upon others to lead him around by the hand. His resentful heart had become receptive. He was no longer breathing threats. He was whispering prayers. He wasn't a man filled with fury. He was a man emptying himself and fasting. Jesus has obviously gone before Ananias as he goes before all of us when we witness in his name. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Ananias says, Ananias has not heard the backstory from Jesus, but yet, nevertheless, he knows it. I wonder if he got to the door and the, the soldiers started to turn him away, if they drew their spears, and he asked, Is Saul of Tarsus staying here? Yes. 
the Lord sent me to minister to him. Is he okay? Well, actually, no. He's incapable of sight. He's blind at the moment. We can't get him to eat anything, not for three days. He's coming apart, actually. Can you say you can help? They told him the story, perhaps, of the blinding light that knocked Saul to his knees on the way into Damascus and left him blind in the state that he was. We don't know how Ananias found out about that story, but he must have risked conversations with others that could have been threatening in order to just get to Saul. And then he laid his hands on him. The scales fell from his eyes as he said, The Lord sent me, Brother Saul, to pray for your eyes that they may be healed and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was, and the scales fell from his eyes, and he was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened and was fed. And before long, he was preaching Jesus, winning souls, planting churches writing a third of the New Testament. Saul the persecutor was quickly becoming Paul the apostle. Maybe everybody's heard of Paul. But how many people have heard of that ordinary garden variety disciple named Ananias without whom Paul may have never been? He may have left a, a broken, regretful shell of a man from Damascus. Had Ananias not come in to do what the Lord said and to reach an enemy like he was a brother. Well, you're, you're a disciple. I can consider myself, and probably you consider yourself, an ordinary disciple in Broken Arrow, or Tulsa, or Bixby. And I wonder this morning, do you know a Saul? So, someone on that side of redemption's story. Someone who has not yet turned to the Lord and found life and purpose and power. Do, do you know a Saul? And if you do, the question, I think, for us this morning is, could we be an Ananias? God still makes chosen in instruments of those that the whole world has written off. So there's modern examples for that. God's still in that business. I read for hours yesterday trying to find the backstory to Kanye West. Never found anything I found satisfying. I wanted to find some dramatic story of someone who had entered his life and had witnessed to him and turned him towards the Lord. You know what I found? None of that, just ordinary disciples. Other Christian rappers and other Christian artists that through the years had rubbed shoulders with them. Now, if you're a fan of hip-hop, you may know some of those names, but I didn't. Just one Ananias after another. Somehow seeing in Kanye West what was yet to redemptively come forth. I'm not raising up Kanye. I don't even know Kanye very well as an example of an incredible Christian. But for a man who is in the process of turning his life around, I read so many things that impressed me. 
of the old life he's leaving behind and of this new life that he's embracing. He's still in the process of that change. He still needs our prayers, but there are Ananiases in his life that turned him in a redemptive direction. And if you want to find someone who believes in people, you'll never find anyone who believes in people more than Jesus. What he saw in Mary Magdalene, what he saw in that shifty sailor fisherman, Simon Peter. Often what Jesus would see in others would be so dramatically different that it would reshape the very identity of who they were. Could you see someone through the eyes of Jesus, not just for what they are, but for what they could be? Has God put it in your heart to see someone differently than almost everyone else in the world sees them, to see them as what they could be, Christ living through them? If so, then you may have been called to be a Ananias. Before we leave this morning, I hope, I hope the Lord speaks to us a name like he spoke a name to Ananias. The name of someone perhaps we already know, maybe someone we've already heard of. Someone we can tell about Jesus' heart for them and the life that he would give them. Uh, there's an old uh, classical story that I, I, I've loved. I don't know that I've ever even seen the whole musical. But it, it's the story of the man, the man from La Mancha. You know, the Don Quixote story. This delusioned champion that sets out on this imagined quest. But for him, it's not imagined. For him, it's real. He's just a little touched in the head. And along the way, he meets person after person, and he sees them through the lens of his quest of righting the wrong, of being faithful even when you don't win. He, he, he sees the world through a different kind of lens, a kingdom kind of possibility. And in, early in the, if we can go back, yeah, early in the, uh, the uh, is that my phone that's ringing? Imagine that. Uh, early in the, the, the actual play, there's the Don Quixote in the, past, in the back, you know, dressed up as a, as a champion. He would charge windmills with his sword, thinking them to be dragons that he would slay. But in this particular uh, uh, saloon of sorts, he meets this woman. She's called Eldanza. Maybe a polite translation would be the broad. She's one that's used and abused by men. She's a barmaid. She's treated as if she's nothing until Don Quixote sees in her not Eldanza, but Dulcinea, a princess. And he, he proclaims, he paints a picture to her of what he sees. She finds it unbelievable at first. And then Don Quixote goes on his many more adventures and travels, and at the end of his life, He's a broken, disillusioned man. He wonders if the quest was all a fantasy, if it ever had made any difference, if it was ever real, if it ever bore any kind of fruit. And he's, he's in a kind of his deathbed, and 
this beautiful woman walks through the door. In, in the 1972 version of this, Eldonza, one more slide please, is presented as uh, uh, Sophia Loren. And, and you can see what the others would have seen. But the next slide shows you what Don Quixote saw. And he addressed her as the woman that she could be. The woman that he saw her to be. And this woman walks through the door. He doesn't recognize her. She realizes he doesn't recognize her. And he says, don't you know me? You called me Dulcinea. And from that moment, I began to change. It makes a difference what we see in people. For they can see reflected in us the possibility of what Christ can do in their own lives. I remember when uh, I was just toying with the idea of being a preacher. I was a psych major. And uh, felt like God was maybe calling me to be a counselor. I wanted to be one of those Gary Smalley kind of guys, you know, the ones that did the relationships and, and, and helped people with their lives and still drove a Jaguar away from the conference, you know. But my heart fell in love with youth that I was given to work with. And it, it, it seems so easy just to, to see in them Things that I was amazed they couldn't see in themselves. And to speak that truth as a seed and, and watch it grow. It was fascinating to me. In my heart, I'm still a youth leader, I think. <laughs> I, I, I love that time of ministry. And as often would be the case, uh, I would be taking my youth to places. And often my first opportunities to speak was because a speaker got sick and I was the only one willing to volunteer. And so I jumped in one night in Lake Junaluska up on the mountain under the lit cross where kids often talk about what uh, has happened to them during that week of that camp experience. And the kids started sharing. And, and then I kind of wrapped up that sharing. And I don't even remember what I said. But I'll never forget what Keith Tonkle said. He was a speaker that was sick that night. And he was a friend of my dad's, and just out of curiosity for what Jim's son might say, he had come to the cross that night. And as it was all over and wrapping up and the evening was finished, he and I walked down from the hill together. And he turned to me and he said something that I didn't understand. He simply said, son, you've got a gift. It was as if he called me Dulcinea. <laughs> I was just a kid scrapping for 